Good morning, church. Today's Bible reading will be from 1 Samuel 11. And if you're using the black Bibles on the pews, it's uh, page 221. Nahesh the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahesh the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gorge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gilbert of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mastered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. This is the Word of God. Thank you, Caleb, and good morning. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we continue our series on 1 Samuel. On the eve of World War II, Nicholas Winton gets a call. His plans to ski the Swiss Alps turns into a trip to Czechoslovakia. He's there for a few weeks, but it was enough time for him to change the lives of hundreds. You see, it was 1938. The eve of World War II, Jews were not only being driven out of Germany and Austria, they were being murdered by the Nazis. Oops. Uh, more than 1,400 synagogues had been torched. Jewish-owned shops and businesses were plundered and destroyed. And 30,000 Jews had already been sent to concentration camps. The threat of war in Europe was looming, and the most vulnerable were the Jews in Europe, especially Jewish children. And so Winton gets to work to devise a plan to save Jewish Jews from Czechoslovakia. 
Even though he was only a, a 29-year-old single stockbroker in London with no experience in humanitarian affairs or politics, he did what he needed to do to save children from the Nazis because no one else was doing it. He raised money to fund his mission and when there wasn't enough money, he used his own money. He wrote to politicians, even the uh, President of the United States, pleading for help. Uh, he placed photographs of children in newspapers seeking families to adopt the children from Czechoslovakia. Uh, and within six weeks of uh, leaving Czechoslovakia, Nazi troops were on the ground in Prague. And so with little time to spare uh, and with a lot of lives to save, he arranges trains to carry children from Nazi-occupied Prague to Britain. He even had to convince the Netherlands not to send the Jewish children back when the train passes their border, because that's what they had been doing. The Netherlands were sending children back to Germany as they tried to flee the Nazis. All in all, Nicholas Winton organized and financed a rescue operation that saved around 669 children from the Holocaust. Since then, he's been labeled Britain's Schindler, British saviour and saviour of children. And they're right to give him these labels, aren't they? The Jewish children of Czechoslovakia were helpless and their parents were helpless. They couldn't even save their own children. They were destined for Nazi concentration camps and extermination. And if it wasn't for Nicholas Winton, they wouldn't have witnessed the end of the war, the destruction of the Third Reich, and the victory of the Allied forces in Europe. The Jewish children in Czechoslovakia in 1938 needed a saviour, someone who would come to save them from extermination, someone to rescue them. And Winton was his name. Now in today's passage, there's also a group of people who are desperate for salvation. They're not in Europe, but in the Middle East. And like the Jewish children in Czechoslovakia who needed a saviour, so these people needed a saviour in Jabesh Gilead. We see this in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us about a, a king by the name of Nahash. He's the king of the Ammonites who went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, a town of Israel. Last week we uh, resumed our series on 1 Samuel and last week we were thinking of the Philistines. And the Philistines came from, from the west, from, from the sea of the Mediterranean. But this week it's the Ammonites who come from the east. You, you see, at this time in Israel's history, about 3,000 years ago, they were surrounded by enemies and they were constantly under threat. And that's why the elders of Israel... Uh, in chapter 8, ask and for a king to lead them to go out and fight their battles. And while the Philistines have set up camp, an outpost in Gibeah, the Ammonites are attacking Jabesh Gilead. And so when Nahash comes with his army, lays siege on Jabesh Gilead, the men of Jabesh Gilead are asked for a treaty. Uh, so verse 1 again, And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Nahash the king, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Now, now if, you, if you've been following the series and if you've read 1 Samuel recently, you'd be surprised by this. Well, what's so, so surprising about the elders and the people of Jabesh Gilead asking for a treaty? Uh, after all, I mean, last week, didn't we just read that Israel now has a king? 
and his name Saul. So, so if there's a king of Israel, then shouldn't he be, be there defending Jabesh? Shouldn't he be there fighting their battles? Isn't that what they wanted? So where is he? Where is Saul, the king of Israel? Well, now Nahash tells them that he's, he's willing to enter a treaty with them, but only on one condition, and we see this in verse 2. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. That's a horrifying condition, isn't it? Imagine that. Your right eye is gouged out. There's no anesthesia. He rips it out. And then he rips out the eye of your loved ones and of your children. That's his condition. And now you might be wondering, why would he do that? Why would he want to gouge out the right eye of every single person living in Jabesh Gilead? Well, imagine if you're a soldier and you're holding a shield with your left hand and a sword with your right. The shield covers your left eye. And so without a right eye, you're not going to be able to see where your enemy is coming from, especially if they're coming from your right. You see, Nahash wasn't just a ruthless king, he was a cunning king. He didn't just want to bring disgrace all over Israel. He wanted to cripple them so that they could never form an army, so that they could never fight for freedom. Now, if you were living in Jabeshkira, you'd be, you'd be horrified and terrified, wouldn't you? And so the elders of Jabesh agreed to it. If no one comes to save them within seven days, they will submit to Nahash and they'll have their eyes gouged out. Their right eye. Verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. Now this is another strange thing that happens in today's passage. Why aren't the elders of Israel sending a messenger to the king? Why, why aren't they sending a messenger straight to Saul and ask Saul, Hey king, come and rescue us. Our enemies have laid siege on your city, on one of the towns of Israel. Why do they send messengers throughout Israel with the vague hope that someone might come and rescue them? It doesn't seem like they have a lot of confidence in Saul as their king, do they? But notice also that they didn't have very much confidence in God. Because God's not mentioned they don't cry out to God to save them. God doesn't even come to mind. That's why I think the people of Jabesh Kiliad were the scoundrels we saw last week. Do you remember them? Do you remember how Samuel gathers all of Israel to Mizpah and he presents Saul to them and he tells them, this is the man God has chosen to be king over you and they shout, long live the king. Samuel then explains the, to the people the rights and the duties of kingship. You see that in chapter 10, verse 25. And I suspect that that included the words in Deuteronomy chapter 17 because Samuel is a prophet of God. He knows the word of God. And so he would have told the king and the people the duties of the king in accordance with the word of God. And so where do we find the word of God about the duties of the king of God, of Israel? Well, we find it in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
So let me read a couple of these verses to you so that you know and you'll hear what they heard, what the duties of the king is. So when he, that is the king of Israel, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. You see, God's king was to be a great person who sat under the word of God, under the law of God. He was to meditate on a day and night. He was to have it with him all the time. He was a great Bible study leader. You see, on the one hand, God gave them a king like the other nations, like they asked for, because God chose someone like the other nations, an impressive young man, a head taller than anyone else in Israel. Yet on the other hand, Saul wasn't going to be like the other nations because God wasn't going to give up his kingdom that they would become like the other nations. He was going to protect them. He was going to keep them as his inheritance, as his own people. And that meant the king of Israel must obey the word of God. And so when Samuel sends uh, Saul to go and fight the Philistines, he had to obey. He had to obey the word of God. But as we saw last week, he didn't. When Saul told them to go home, they had to go home, including Saul the king. And so on that occasion, Saul does obey. He does go home. But then when the scoundrels hear of this, hears of the duties of this king that is to rule them, they say, how can this fellow save us? Now, why would they say that? Saul's an impressive man, a hair taller than the others. He looks like a king from the other nations. So why would these scoundrels say, how can this fellow save us? Well, I think that these scoundrels think that Saul can't save them because he's not going to be exactly like the other nations. He might look like them, but he can't do what he wants when he wants he still has to obey the word of God. And so they don't think he can save them and be their king because they don't want a king who would obey the word of God. They want a ruthless king like the other nations. And then immediately after we're told about the scoundrels, we're told about the situation at Jabesh Gilead. Immediately after the scoundrels say, how can this fellow save us? We're told of the people of Jabesh Gilead who need saving. And so I think the scoundrels at Saul's coronation are the people of Jabesh Gilead. For when they needed saving, they neither cried out to God, nor did they send a messenger to their newfound king. And so what happens? Well, the messengers end up in Gibeah anyway, which we're reminded in verse 4 that it's Saul's hometown. But notice that they, did, they, they came to Gibeah not because they were looking for Saul, but because the messengers were going from town to town, hoping for a saviour. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And said, so the messengers have come to Saul's hometown, but where's Saul? What's he doing? Is he out there fighting the Philistines? Is he still with his uncle chatting about donkeys? 
Well, we're told he's been farming. Verse 5, just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. So in Saul's hometown, there's a Philistine outpost that he had to fight and he did nothing about it. It's still there. Nahash the Ammonite has laid siege on Jabesh Gilead and attacked the people of God and threatened them. And what was Saul doing? Hanging out with his oxen. This is not what you'd expect of a king. So what's going on? Samuel anoints Saul to save his people, but he doesn't save anyone. The people proclaim him with great excitement, shouting, Long live the king! But he's busy looking after his veggie patch instead of being busy protecting the people of God. You see, it appears that Saul isn't very interested in the things of God still. He isn't very interested in the kingdom of God, but in his own little kingdom of donkeys and oxen. And so, how will Saul become the king Israel wants and the king Israel needs? Well, the answer lies in verse 6. It's by the Spirit of God. Verse 6, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Now, this anger that we read of isn't unwarranted anger or, or, or anger that comes from impatience or rage that's uncontrollable, like when a parent snaps at a, a child unfairly or when a customer yells at a Telstra employee. Uh, this is righteous anger. Anger that comes from a sense of outrage at injustice. Uh, so yesterday I read a story about a 15-year-old uh, teenager. Uh, he's driving his car in Los Angeles. Uh, he was driving down the road and he sees a woman crossing the road pushing her pram with a baby in it. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't actually slow down and let them cross. He doesn't maneuver away so that he avoids them. He looks dead straight at her and at her pram and speeds up and rams into her. He deliberately rams her. She's sent flying over the bonnet. Pram is flung into the sky and he speeds off. It's a hit and run. When the video of this incident was shared, people were furious. Furious at his behavior, furious that a boy would do this to anyone, let alone a mother with her child. How could anyone do that? And so if you're burning with anger at this boy, that's righteous anger. It's right for us to feel angry when someone's wronged or someone's hurt for no good reason. It's righteous anger. And that's the sort of anger God has towards us when we sin. When we hurt him and hurt each other, it makes God angry, rightfully angry, righteously angry. And here we see God's anger in Saul. You see, we see Saul burning with anger because God's people are being attacked for no good reason, threatened to have their right eyes gouged out for no fault of their own. But notice that Saul burns with anger because God's Spirit powerfully comes upon him. 
That is, God's made to feel, Saul's made to feel what God feels. So that Saul will do what God would do, and that is to save his people from his enemies. And that's exactly what Saul goes on to do. He takes a pair box and cuts them into pieces, sends it throughout Israel, and musters an army of thousands. Verse 8, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. What follows is a great military victory. He splits his army into three divisions, defeats the Ammonites. Verse 11, the next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So from the wee hours of the morning, from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., they defeat the Ammonites. Saul sends his troops to victory. The elders of Jabesh Gilead cried out for help. They didn't think Saul could pull it off. They needed a savior, and Saul was their savior. Saul saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, if you remember the story from last week, you, you have to wonder, what's the difference between this week and last week's story? In last week's story, the Spirit of God powerfully came upon Saul as well. But instead of fighting the Philistines, he had a good old yarn about donkeys with his uncle. And in today's passage, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God, comes powerfully upon him again. But this time he defeats the Ammonites. He goes and fights for the people of God. So what's the difference? How did poor Saul go from searching for donkeys to searching for the enemy? How did he, he go from being a shy, hesitant farmer to being commander-in-chief? How did Saul go from hiding amongst the supplies like a coward to leading men on a battlefield like a warrior? How, how did Saul go from rallying oxen to rallying 330,000 men to fight God's battle? Well, the only difference is that in last week's passage, Saul was given a choice. Do you remember the phrase, do what your hand finds to do? And he chose to do nothing. But here in this week's passage, he wasn't given a choice. God's Spirit comes upon him and God makes him feel what God feels. Anger. Righteous anger. Do you notice in verse 6, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And when Saul needed an army, it was God who rallied the troops to him, verse 7. That the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came together as one. You see, salvation came not because Israel had a king like the other nations, but because the king had the Spirit of God. That's what the scoundrels should have realized. What they needed wasn't a king who didn't obey God's word, but one who did obey God's one word, one who was led by the Spirit of God. And so the people now want to distance themselves from these scoundrels. They asked Samuel to hand them over so that they could put them to death. Verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we might put them to death. But before Samuel can say a word, Saul intervenes with his word. For he knows that success came not by his might, but by the power of God. Verse 13, But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord 
has rescued Israel. Last week, Saul didn't even want to talk about the kingdom of God. But now he gives all the credit to God. And this is significant, isn't it? Because he finally gets it. He finally understands that Israel can have a human king in Saul without rejecting God as their true king. Because God can and will save his people through his human king, so long as the king obeys God's word. And it appears that Saul's not the only one who gets it, because the people also get it. And so Samuel calls the people together again to renew the kingship. And it's left ambiguous for us to renew the kingship. The kingship of who? Well, from the context, it's clear that it's to renew the kingship not of Saul alone, but of God himself as their true king. Verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. Do you notice the difference again from this week's passage and last week's passage? This time God's included in the coronation service. He wasn't there last time, but here he is. They made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. They didn't do that last week. They sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, which expresses their unity, not just with each other, but with God himself. You see, they thought a king like the other nations was what they needed. But they now realize that it's not. Because God himself is their great deliverer. And they realize that source kingship and God's kingship is not mutually exclusive. God can be king and they can have a human king so long as that human king continues to obey the word of God. When Jewish children in Czechoslovakia were destined for concentration camps, they needed a saviour. Someone who would drop whatever they were doing to do all they can to save children from certain death. That man was Nicholas Winton, who not only went above and beyond to save the lives of 669 children, He kept it a secret, and no one knew of it for 50 years. Because he didn't consider himself a hero, but just an ordinary person who did what needed to be done. And when the people of Jabesh Gilead found themselves surrounded by the ruthless and eye-gouging Ammonites, they needed a saviour too. Someone who would fight their battle and deliver them from their enemies. And that man was Saul. For God's spirit came powerfully upon him. He was made to feel what God feels so that he would do what God would do. And that was to save God's people from his enemies. And friends, we might not be at risk of being sent to a concentration camp or having our eyes gouged out. But the threat that we all face is far greater and far more significant. And that is the threat of sin and death and the righteous anger of God upon us. And so you and I need a saviour. 
A Savior who will defeat sin and death for us. A Savior who will take upon the wrath of God, the anger of God upon himself so that God doesn't pour that anger on us for the ways in which we've hurt him and each other. And that man is Jesus, God's promised king. But like Saul, not many people believe he could save. Even Nathaniel, who became one of the twelve apostles, didn't believe it. For he said in John 146, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And even after feeding the thousands and walking on water, his stepbrothers didn't even believe him. For they said in John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they mocked him and laughed at him. And they said in Matthew 27, 42, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. But you see, it was because Jesus didn't save himself that he gave himself over to sin and death and take upon himself the wrath of God, the anger of God, that he can save us. For Jesus isn't a king like the other nations. For he who, being in very nature God, he who is God himself, stopped whatever he was doing so that he might come and be man to save us from our sin and our death and the anger of God, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is the man who obeyed the word of God even if it meant dying on the cross. Jesus is the king we need because he's the one who obeyed God even to death to save us. So friends, let's renew the kingship of God at the foot of the cross. For Jesus is our king and we need him. We need him not only to save us but to continue to help us to fight the battle that continues to rage on. As Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not physical but spiritual. And this battle continues to rage on in our lives. For Jesus hasn't just saved us, but he has given us his spirit so that we might also put to death sin in our lives. So friends, let's take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And as we continue our series on 1 Samuel, let's keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, for he is our Saviour King, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.